0: And welcome to Can't Make This Up, a true crime podcast. I'm Cassie.
1: And I'm Mark, her dad, a true crime professional. I'm currently a traffic homicide detective in South Florida.
0: And we hope you guys enjoy. So we're back again this week with part three of the highway of tears so this one's gonna be all the cases that took place in the 1990s
1: we're gonna wrap it up today
0: which well no there's still gonna be one more after this
1: oh all right then so it's a four-parter
0: it's a four-parter yeah i was gonna try and shove everything into this episode but then it would be like two hours long so i was like we might as well
1: yeah well yeah break it up
0: but the 1990s is like finally a decade when i was actually like living right I'm also dressed in my 90s attire for this you recording are. you are I'm glad it's back <laughs> have you not been on the social seeing all the fashions
1: I do not go on the social scene wow I am not about the fashion
0: so we just have a couple of announcements before we begin like always please join us on our social media accounts we've had like a lot of people at us in the last couple of weeks it's- the last couple weeks, it's yeah. been a lot of fun. We've had people comment.
1: Yeah, like a couple of people have reached out to us. It's very nice. Yeah, yeah. we get
0: really, really excited. I like, I'll text yeah. like pictures of it to my dad and be like, "Look, people like yeah. us."
1: Yeah, um, we appreciate the comments and the uh, the the nice uh, the well wishes and stuff. That's very nice.
0: So we're at Can't Make This Shit Up Pod on Instagram. It's good to join the Instagram because that's where we post all our pictures for like all the cases and stuff we're also on cmtsu pod on twitter and we are on facebook at can't make this shit up a true crime podcast discussion group so add us yeah also please send us in some more questions thank you to everybody who's already sent us in questions we're gonna have two at the end of this episode as well that we're gonna answer excellent uh we've gotten like quite a couple good ones so you guys are really good at the questions so far looking forward to that so, if you want to send us some questions, you can email it to us at can't make this shit up pod at gmail.com or at any of our social media accounts. You can DM it and I'll add it to our list. So, now we're going to continue our coverage of the Highway of Tears. Like I said, last episode, we did all of the 1980s. Today, we're going to do all of the 1990s. There's actually quite a few cases in the 1990s and quite oh, a few crazy. really, really interesting ones. This one, I think, will be a really interesting episode. So the first case that took place in the 1990s, it actually involved four victims.
1: I have to say, I'm really not shocked, but because really nothing shocks me anymore. But I'm really surprised that this has been going on for so long, like so many decades, you know, like if it is the same person or a group of people that have just like been copying each other, it's just it's crazy to me that it's all happening within the same area and, you know.
0: Well that's why I'm exci- I'm excited for to do the last episode which will be next week because at the end we'll we'll really get into like what the epana what do you call it
1: the task the, the task, task force I
0: don't, I don't know why I can never remember the word task force it's really annoying but right. we'll we'll get into like what they have found cuz you know okay. they they formulated this task force to investigate all of these crimes so they've come out with sort of a report of because it's proven that these are committed by multiple people. Like they're, it's just oh, okay. a fact. And okay. I mean, as far as the ones that have been solved, but they they basically come out with like a, a report that states why they think this this area is so prone to like violence against women. OK, so it, that'll be good at the end. Okay, we'll, yeah. we'll go into like all their findings and stuff.
1: Yeah, I'd like to hear what they have to say.
0: The first case in the 1990s, it took place on February 5th, 1990. So at about 5.15 a.m., Prince Rupert firefighters were called to extinguish a fire at 153 3rd Avenue West. When they arrived, the Brooks Bank building was completely engulfed in flames. The firefighters spent hours putting out the flames. On the ground floor of the building was a store, which at the time was called the Linen Coff the linen closet Okay. Um, above the store were apartments on the second and third floor. So it was a three, three three-story building bottom was a store. And the next two floors up were apartments.
1: Okay.
0: When the firefighters entered the apartment on the third floor, they unfortunately found four deceased victims who had huddled together on the floor of the living room amid all the flames. So they had burned alive. Oh God. The renter of the apartment was Helga Roshan who lived alone, but that night she'd invited her two daughters, Pauline and Sherry Rashawn, and Pauline's seven-month-old daughter, Kimberly, to spend the night. Oh, geez. Following an investigation, it was discovered that the fire had been deliberately set, but it was unclear why or who the intended victims may have been, because obviously this is a big building.
1: Right. There are multiple. Yeah, multiple people, multiple tenants.
0: Yeah, they weren't sh- they these were the only tenants that passed away, unfortunately, but they weren't, you know, sure that they were the intended victims or was the store the supposed to be the victim, no one knew. Right. Police discovered that this was not the first time the building had been set on fire. 4 months earlier on October 31st, 1989, so Halloween night. Okay. At approximately 2:45 a.m., the building was set on fire and the cause was determined to be arson. But that fire was put out safely and everyone was okay. Yeah, okay. So it's never been discovered who set either one of those fires.
1: Jeez, okay.
0: In 2011, the RCMP revealed that a family member had received an anonymous letter revealing new information about the case. All right. But what the letter contained has never been released publicly, so we don't know what the letter right. said.
1: But it had something um, to do with the fires. Yes. Okay. Okay.
0: So Staff Sergeant Gary Kerr is the lead investigator on the case. So if you recognize that name, Gary Kerr, we heard about in one of our other Highway of Tears cases, the murder of Alberta Gail Williams. She was the one that disappeared from Popeye's Pub and her bloody clothes were found in a bush, found like pillowcases and stuff with it. Yeah. All her bloody clothes were found by Officer Gary Kerr. But remember, they were destroyed before they had connected it to Alberta's case. Uh, Okay. so it's interesting because Gary Kerr was just a, a patrol officer during that time. But now he's the lead investigator on this arson case. So of the Rashawn murders, Kerr told CBC News that the brutality of the case still sticks with him today. He said, quote, I can still see them huddled together in the living room area. The small child still in her mother's arms. I can't imagine the horror they went through.
1: Yeah, those are images you never lose.
0: Kimberly's father, which is the baby. Kimberly's father is still seeking answers for what happened to his family. He told the province A, quote, you're pretty well living your life looking over your shoulder. You're thinking, was it directed at me? Was it directed at my family? Was it vagrants just trying to keep warm? I still live in the same town, hoping that someday someone will give a whisper. It's been so long. If I had found out who did it 15 years ago, I would have murdered them. Now I just want justice for them. They lost three generations of their family. What can you say about that?
1: I'm assuming that this building or whatever is on the highway, right?
0: Yes. It's within a few miles of the highway of tears. So that's why it's on the list. Right. Okay. He also said, uh, the father of Kimberly, he said, you can move on, but it's really hard when it pops up again. I want whoever is responsible to know what they did. Pauline was a beautiful woman. They were a hardworking women. Wow.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't I mean, I guess you, you, you I don't necessarily agree that you move on, but I guess you just kind of learn to to cope with the loss and and continue your life. But, you know,
0: well, and I see what he's saying, like every time it's brought up.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's I know, that's horrible to lose a child. Like, I mean, to lose anybody, any type of loved one. Well, like and that. his,
0: I don't they refer to him as Kimberly's father in the articles I've seen. So I assume that means that him and Pauline, the mother, weren't married. Right. But it seems like they were still together because he's has nothing but like good things to say about her. But if you believe you may have any information on the murder or on the letter's author, because remember that anonymous letter was sent. It's
1: still unknown.
0: Yeah. Uh, in the article I read, it said to please call the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit at one 543 Or you can always anonis- anonymously call Crime Stoppers. Mm. And their number is one 800 8477 so our next victim is actually the cousin of one of our victims from the last episode. What? Yes. So her name is Delphine Ann Camilla Nickel. She okay. was the cousin of Cecilia Ann Nickel. Okay. Who disappeared along the Highway of Tears in 1989. And she was never found. She disappeared and her body was never found. Yeah,
1: that's one of the unsolved.
0: Right. So Delphine is her cousin. So Delphine was fifteen years old and living with her uncle at the time in Telqua,
1: and this was in 1990 as well.
0: This was in 1990. So her cousin disappeared oh, in years. 89, yeah, and Delphine disappeared a year later. But their cousin, oh, a year
1: later, okay, 89, yeah, 90. Duh.
0: I'm not sure because she, Delphine, was living with her uncle at the time, so I'm mm-hmm. not sure if this is the like the father of Cecilia. Right. Or if it's like a separate uncle, that's not related, but she was living with her uncle in Telqua. Telqua, All right. On June 13th, 1990, Delphine told her uncle that she was going to meet three of her girlfriends in a town called Smithers, which was about 16 kilometers away from her uncle's house. So she hitchhiked there. She arrived there safely, but also just like stop hitchhiking with Dr. Dot. (laughs)
1: yeah right
0: (laughs) so so many of these cases especially on the highway of tears it's people hitchhiking Hitchhiking. it's like
1: yeah you never know whose car you're getting into
0: and honestly even when it comes to like ubers and lifts and all that stuff i refuse to do it by myself i will only ever go in one if somebody is riding with me that's smart because you never know
1: you absolutely don't especially for you know women not to
0: no it's true women are more vulnerable
1: they are Yeah, for sure. Uh, And
0: it sucks to, in in that way, it sucks to be a girl because we always have to be like on our watch. Absolutely. She got to her friend's house. She got there safely. They were, you know, fine. At 10 p.m., Delphine called her uncle and told him she was going to hitchhike back to Smithers, or I'm sorry, not back to Smithers, back to his home in Telqua. Okay. So the last people to see her were two of her girlfriends who she had been with. And they stated that she had been attempting to hitchhike home in the eastbound lane of highway 16. Okay. Um, so this is about 10 PM. So obviously when she didn't return home, she was re- reported missing. Investigators feel that Delphine was most likely kidnapped by a serial murderer by the name of Bobby Jack Fowler, who was operating within Canada and the U S during that time. Okay. And I guess his DNA was found on the body of another woman whose name was Colleen McMillan, and she was killed in 1974 but police didn't match Fowler to that DNA uh, until 2012. Damn. So it's believed that he may have killed up to 20 women on the highway of tears.
1: Jeez, okay. So a
0: lot of these unsolved cases police think may have been him, but unfortunately okay. he was in prison and he before any of his DNA was connected, he mm-hmm. was in prison and he died of lung cancer in 2006. Damn. So He was first tied to the Highway of Tears in 2012 because of DNA, but he had already passed away by then. So they couldn't interview him or anything. Yeah. Yeah. The task force believes that he possibly could be connected to a lot of these cases, but they can't do anything because he's dead. Right. Right. The next victim within the 1990s is Donna Mae Charlie, which is a cool name. Like Charlie is a cool last name.
1: Right. I think so. All right.
0: So she was only 22 years old when in September of 1990. So we're still in on 1990. We haven't even got to a. Wow. Okay. She traveled to Prince George with her boyfriend, Jerry. His last name's hard to pronounce. I think it's Maslet. Okay. The couple rented a motel room at the Sportsman's Motel, they rented it to use marijuana, mushrooms, and they were drinking. Upon checkout, the motel's owner entered the room to clean it up and discovered the room was in complete disarray and there was blood all over the walls. Seven months later, on April 17th, 1991, the police located a body which had been buried in a shallow grave on a vacant lot, which was located in close proximity to the sportsman's motel. The body was headless. A month later, Donna's boyfriend, Jerry smaslet, mosslet, Whatever, who cares, really? He was arrested for the murder. Um, so it was her? Yes, it was his girlfriend, Donna May Charlie. I was
1: going to say, when they checked out, like, did they both check out or just one of them checked out? or?
0: I'm not sure that the details on it, but I know it didn't take long for the investigators to figure out, basically, like, he was the last one seen with her and it was him. Okay. Jerry confessed to police that he had murdered Donna behind the sportsman's motel, and he had had two of his cousins, a female and a male cousin, Help him bury the body in, in the vacant lot, but he stated he buried the head separately in an area known as Connaught Hill. It's unclear if he was really telling the truth about that because Donna's head was never recovered. They searched and searched for it and couldn't find it.
1: Okay, well, I mean, what do you do with a severed head other than well, bury it? You know, like somewhere else. But
0: he's also an idiot because I assume he's he like hid her head somewhere else, like because of like identification or whatever. Right. But. My dude, like there's still fingerprints. There's mm-hmm. still like, it's like if you were going to do that, like you didn't do, you're an idiot.
1: Yeah. Well, not very smart for sure.
0: So during the trial, Jerry claimed that he discovered Donna behind the motel passed out and turning blue and panicked because of their drug use and, and basically hid the body. So he claims that he didn't kill her. She was just like overdosed on drugs. And then I hid the body because I didn't want to get in trouble.
1: And how does he explain the decapitation?
0: Because he didn't want them to recognize the body.
1: Oh, so he doesn't he doesn't deny decapitating her, just that he didn't murder her. Right. Okay.
0: He he claims that he buried her because like he knew if he called yeah. the police that you know they were doing drugs and they'd get in trouble, basically.
1: Right, right. Okay.
0: Which bullshit. But I mean, but,
1: but cut her head off so you can't find out who she is.
0: Right. Bullshit. Bullshit. However, his cousins member that helped him bury yeah, the right. body. Yeah. Right. They both testified that he had confessed to murdering her in cold blood and he had told them that he'd cut her head off while she was still alive.
1: Oh, Jesus. Okay. Well, there's that.
0: So ultimately the jury convicted Jerry of second degree murder. However, the conviction was overturned on appeal and a new trial was held in May of 1995. At that okay. trial... He pled guilty to manslaughter and was only sentenced to an additional year in prison in conjunction with the 38 months he'd already served. So he also received two years of probation and a lifelong weapons prohibition.
1: So he got like four years in prison, some probation.
0: Yeah. He, and then he got out. So sometimes,
1: sometimes the justice system doesn't always work.
0: So. Well, they really fucked up on this one because six yeah. years later in 2001. Here we go. He was arrested again. After me... he kidnapped and assaulted another woman who has remained unnamed. she's th- They've kept her name out of...
1: But she was murdered by him?
0: No, no, no. no. She was kidnapped and assaulted, but she survived. Oh, oh she
1: survived. Okay, okay.
0: Not, not because he w- didn't try to kill her. She just survived. At the trial, Madam Justice Liu described the horrific events in court, and this is what she stated happened. Quote, around 1 a.m. on December 7th, 2001, with no shoes or jacket, the woman... Because you know they black out her name. Right, right. Ran out the door and down the highway. He ran after her, grabbed her, and forced her to walk back. When they returned, he was verbally abusive, punched her in the left side of her back four times and on the side of her head. He locked all of the windows, closed the curtains, and inserted three knives into the top and sides of the door to the motel room. He told her that she was never going outside. For four days, he allowed the woman to wear nothing but her bra and panties until December 11th, 2001, when the motel manager had come in to fix the bathroom sink. So basically, the only reason this woman survived is he was like torturing her this whole time is because the hotel manager just happened to come in and like find her. That's crazy. But mind you, none of that would have happened if they kept the motherfucker in jail to begin with.
1: That's a true statement. Happens a lot, unfortunately, but
0: following the woman's escape, she was taken to the hospital and examined by doctors. It was discovered she had suffered severe bruising to her kidney area, which had resulted in her peeing blood. That's how hard he punched her that she was peeing blood. Right. And uh, she also had fractured ribs. Following his trial for that assault, Justice Liu declared that Jerry Smaslet would spend the rest of his life behind bars. She stated, quote, Mr. Smaslet is at high or substantial risk of violently reoffending. It is unlikely that Mr. Smaslet can be treated so as to reduce his risk of reoffending to an acceptable manner. I am not satisfied that there is a reasonable possibility of eventual control of the risk to the community. I find him to be a dangerous offender and impose a sentence of detention in the penitentiary for an indeterminate period.
1: Good for her. should have happened the first time but what are you gonna do
0: that that guy was just nuts clearly
1: yeah he's yeah a nice hatred
0: of women or whatever well clearly basically i guess the second victim which i assume something similar happened to like i assume that he probably did something similar to donna obviously we don't know because she obviously isn't able to tell us But she said that he got he got upset basically when she tried to leave. Like he was like, oh, fuck, no, you can't leave. Like I tell you if you can leave or not.
1: Right. Like that's
0: what that's what set him off.
1: And I'm sure the drugs and the alcohol didn't, you know,
0: the next victim was a woman named maureen sullivan so just to make it clear some of these victims i think are indigenous women but okay. i wasn't a, i was unable to find for sure if they are or aren't so i don't want to okay. say one way or the other but the ones that i could find for sure i will let you guys know but so some of these i'm unsure but of
1: definitely right. some were and then of course some weren't so
0: right so the next victim was a woman named maureen sullivan So in January of 1992, she went to a bar with her husband, Wayne, and returned home with him and her friend, Sandy. Wayne demanded that Sandy and Maureen have a threesome with him. When both women refused, Wayne became enraged, shot his wife in the head, and then sexually assaulted Sandy, her friend.
1: Jolly.
0: Wayne was found guilty of the murder of his wife. However, he appealed the conviction, stating that he was not criminally responsible due to a mental disorder, claiming he was not aware of what he was doing at the time of the murder due to his severe alcoholism.
1: Don't tell me they believe that.
0: I wish I could tell you that. (laughs) Okay. So expert witnesses were called to testify and stated that alcohol severely affected Wayne's brain, and that he did not understand right from wrong at the time of the murder. After only serving seven years, his conviction was overturned, and he was released from prison in March of 1999. But the judge said, okay, you're free to go, but you're you're not allowed to drink alcohol anymore. So he was required to report regularly for blood testing to ensure that he wasn't drinking. Okay. However, that (laughs) summer... Be prepared to get real mad. (laughs) Great. So that summer, after he was released he was arrested again for failing to show up for one of his required blood sample tests. Okay. Unfortunately, due to some sort of mix-up, the Attorney General's office failed to produce a report listing their reasoning as to why Wayne should still be required to give these regular blood samples. So the judge had no choice but to overturn that conviction as well. So as of today, Wayne is completely free and able to drink and do whatever the fuck he wants.
1: Okay, well, you know... Can't make this shit up.
0: We just had two examples back-to-back of men who were abusive motherfuckers who killed pe- killed their girlfriends slash wives and right. got off.
1: Got away. Yep. Got away with it because of a, a technicality or that's something that's always angered me like in court. Like, if you know, a, a minor mistake or oversight can throw out an entire case, which... I don't agree with, but I mean, that's the justice system. So, but it's just ridiculous. And, you know, this, and then you have stories like this where the person gets out on a technicality or, or an overturned. you know, like an appeal, and he goes and they reoffend again. And it's like, they're like, oh, he should have been in jail. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things that should have happened, but yeah. Happen. so Yeah. But, you know, so where are we living? The rules we have to play by.
0: So the next year on Valentine's Day of 1993. Three, okay. This is an indigenous woman. Therese Umphrey went missing who we, we had mentioned at the end of our last episode, she was one of the victims of the serial killer, Brian Peter Arp. Okay. So she was last seen outside of a convenience store in Prince George along Highway 16. After she was reported missing, a couple of men called police and told them that they had seen Therese outside of the store and she was intoxicated. So this part of the story is really sad because I think she would have been safe because these guys were actually, as it turns out, like good guys. So they basically saw that she was really intoxicated and were kind of worried for her safety. So they offered to take her home right? because, you know, she was a woman outside drunk and alone. So she got into their car, but was so intoxicated that she couldn't recall where she lived. The men drove her around for quite some time trying to, like, find her home and -hmm. they couldn't. So finally, the men returned her to the convenience store where they had picked her up.
1: How about take her to a police station or a hospital? Or... Yeah,
0: I agree. Don't get me wrong. I think that these guys could have done more well, than they should have. But at least, like, they try. I, they I won't them that they tried to help.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah.
0: I agree that, you know, if it were me and I had seen a girl like that.
1: Bring well, her back to the store and call the police there. And say, well, hey. and
0: I'm also a woman, so it's a little bit different. Like, in terms of, honestly, like, well, it's also different, too, because you have to think people didn't have cell phones and stuff back then. But, like, you know, nowadays, I would try to get like hey give me a phone number of like a friend or somebody like you know i would call somebody to like come get her or like something but it's obviously back then it like wasn't as easy to do that
1: right so so call the police i mean that's the simplest
0: or just you know i can understand not wanting to call the police because you don't want to get her in trouble or like whatever but you could always take her to the hospital
1: but just because they call the police doesn't mean she's gonna get in trouble you know she's a at that point she's in talks unless she you know, unless she acts a certain way when they get there. But down here in, in Florida, we have the Marchman Act, which has to do with, with alcohol. And like we have, you know, Baker Act for mental, you know, for mental illness evaluation or for, you know, mental is, health evaluation.
0: I have a question Is Baker Act, I was actually talking about this recently, is Baker Act just a Florida thing or is that national?
1: I know every state ha- has a version of it. I don't know if it's called Baker Act everywhere. Just in the state of Florida, it was the Baker Act that was presented to the government here, like to the legislation here. Right. And it was passed under the Florida statute um, that it is. So it's called Baker Act, but they've actually changed it since then. It's called like, it's called the Mental Health Act now or something like that. Like they've, we just still in, in, in law enforcement still call it Baker Act. Like we that's Although
0: just- ex- explain to like the listeners, like what that is.
1: All right. Baker Act is basically like, let's say you have a, a family member that's experiencing some type of mental health issue. Like the family would call the police and then the police come and do an investigation. And basically if we make a determination that the person cannot care for themselves or is a possible threat to others, um, or themselves,
0: could,
1: yeah, to themselves or to others, or if they are already diagnosed with some type of mental health issue and they're like, Say so they're not taking their medication and and they're having experiencing some type of episode, like a uh, you know, some type of mental health breakdown or something. The Baker Act. The, the statute allows us to take that person to a facility, a hospital where they can be, they're held up to 72 hours for evaluation by mental health professionals and by medical staff. So basically it's nothing against your record. It's not a criminal, you know, it's not a criminal proceeding or anything like that, but basically we just get you to a facility where you can get the help, whether it's, you know, medication. Hospital. The, yeah. It's always a hospital, um, whether it's a mental health hospital, or we actually take you to like a regular hospital through the emergency room, but the, every hospital has a mental health ward.
0: But can oh. you you can you use that for like if you're into, like heavily intoxicated?
1: That that falls under the Mar- Marchman Act, which is a different which is the same type of thing, but it's for hi- heavily intoxicated people. And they used to call them the drunk tank like we used to take them to the jail and they would sit in the they weren't arrested, but they were like just there to sober up, To sober up. And then they get released and there's no criminal charge, but they haven't had that for a long time. So they, they passed the Marchman Act. Wait, because that's
0: was- interesting. I didn't know that the drunk tank like wasn't a thing anymore.
1: No, well, it falls under the Marchman Act and we have to take you to a facility again. Like now, instead of going to jail, you go to a hospital where they- Which
0: I think is better. (laughs)
1: Yeah. That's why, yeah, that's why it changed. I mean, even though there was nothing on your record, you know, it still felt criminal because you were being taken by the police to jail. So that changed in the legislation as well. So now, you know, it's called the Marchman Act. You know, those are things that we do as well, like law enforcement does as well to try to help because it's not a criminal act. I mean, yes, people get drunk and they do, you know, they do silly things or whatever. And as long as you're not- a danger to anybody? You're not causing a disturbance, anything like that. You know, we have to deal with you in a different way. You know, because everybody—well, I'm not say everybody, but everybody's been drunk at some point, or most people right. have been drunk. And sometimes you, you know, you get—I know, I drunk.
0: certainly have.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have too. And you just get so drunk that you kind of lose control. Not that it's okay, but you're just—you're not doing something criminal. You just—you know—one too many, and you know, we need to be able to to do something with you. And it's not necessarily a criminal offense to be drunk, you know.
0: But back to the highway of tears highway of tears like i said she got into these guys car they they tried to help her could they do, have done a little more yes i think so but they at um, least
1: they did something
0: right so they dropped her back off cuz they didn't know who, what right. else to do so they right. dropped her back off at the convenience store at 2:30 p.m. that same day cuz this is you know early morning hours when this all went on At 2.30 p.m., she hadn't even been reported missing yet. Teresa's nude and partially frozen body was found on a snowbank 50 kilometers southwest of Prince George. It was determined that her cause of death was both manual strangulation and then strangulation with a a ligature. Police determined that a shoelace found near her body was most likely used. Eight months later, Brian Peter Arp was convicted of the murder using DNA evidence- And was a serial
1: killer guy, right?
0: Right. So he and Teresa's case, because he had killed before her, but he had never been connected to those murders. So Teresa's case is the case that got him caught.
1: uh, Okay. Always generally one that, you know, opens the door and then they're able to, you know, so so
0: basically they connected him to this murder, murder and then was able to connect him to murders previous as well. Okay. So he was the, the murder that we had covered relating to him last episode was Marnie Blanchard. So he had killed her prior to Therese, but Therese is the one who got him caught. Okay. So a year after Therese Humphrey's disappearance, another Indigenous woman also went missing. Her name was Ramona Lisa Wilson. On June 11th, 1994, Ramona was 16 years old at the time. She told her mother that she was going to hitchhike to, which once again, stop hitchhiking. (laughs) So Ramona, she was hitchhiking to, um, it was basically graduation season. So she had a few friends that were having graduation parties. So she was kind of like, just bouncing between the parties. So okay. her mom wasn't expecting her, you know, home till late because she was going to these graduation parties. The next morning Ramona's parents wake up and they realize she isn't home. So after calling a few friends and kind of, you know, cause I'm sure at first they're like, Oh, maybe she just got late. She slept over, you know? Right. So they called around, no one knew where she was. So they immediately reported her missing to the RCMP. Unfortunately, her family wouldn't receive any answers about what had happened to Ramona until nearly a year later, on April 9th, 1995. Ramona's remains were found north of Yellick Road near Smithers Airport. So a few feet away from her body, a neatly organized pile of items were found. The pile included a half-buried section of rope, three interlocked nylon ties... And, oddly, a small pink water pistol that resembled brass knuckles. Okay. Unfortunately, Ramona's murderer has never been found. The case is still open, and it is included on the ePana list. So it's being investigated by the ePana Task Force. Hey, Ram- you
1: remember Task Force.
0: Well, it's written in my notes, so oh. I wish I could... T- I would love to take credit <laughs> for it, but no.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> Ramona had five siblings. And she was very close to her mother, whose name is Matilda Wilson. Matilda called her daughter Sweetheart Baby because Ramona had been born the day after Valentine's Day. Matilda actually speaks very highly of the lead investigator on her daughter's case, who is Sergeant Wayne Clary. So he's the leader of the EPANA task force. So of Sergeant Wayne Clary, Matilda told CBC News, quote, he has a lot of respect for our family, I think, especially the case. He's trying to be understanding in, in the ways that he knows how. It gives me a feeling he's trying the best that he can. So I was like, good for him. Like, shout out to yeah. him. All right. Like, he's one of the good ones. Yeah. So I wanted to end Ramona's case. Uh, Brenda, who's one of Ramona's sisters, because remember she had five siblings. So she's actually now the lead organizer of a memorial walk in Ramona's honor each June. If any of our Canadian listeners live around there, you should go participate. They do like a big walk every year. Send us pictures if you do it, because I'd love to post it. Yeah. I wish yeah. like maybe what once, you know, if this podcast really takes off and we have the money to, I'd love to like go, like fly out there and do it. It'd be so yeah. fun. I shouldn't say fun, but like, you know, good.
1: no, but you definitely it'd be something good to support and, and right. to bring and bring, you know, notice, you know, enlightenment to Cause that, you know, that's what a lot of these cases need is just, you know, the, the, they go cold and, you know, I hate to say, you know, the crime doesn't stop. So especially like, you know, in, in like, I have a very good, my department is a very good cold case squad and, but there's only um, let's see, there's, there's three detectives and a sergeant and they're going over cases from, you know, they just, they're, they're overwhelmed, but they do very well and they have a very good closure rate and stuff. But, you know, the cases get shelved, unfortunately, because more crimes come in, more murders occur and, you know, the manpower is limited. So we have to, you know, move forward with the cases that we can, you know, investigate and, and follow leads that we have. And unfortunately, when cases go cold and there's no more leads, sometimes they sit for a while and, you know, that's the truth. It's, you know, it's, it's sad because the families want answers. And as investigators, you get invested in these cases and you, you know, you want to see closure as well and you want to resolve it, but you know, sometimes you can't. And
0: I honestly wish that like, which, you know, as our podcast grows and hopefully we start like monetizing it, I would really love to use some of the proceeds to, you know, give to certain nonprofits and stuff that work with these sort of things you know or just like causes that we identify with and want to contribute to you know absolutely
1: absolutely yeah because i mean that's what's you know that's what's necessary is like you know information people you know people know things and
0: well it sucks that you have to pay people for information because people should just be good and want to give it but that unfortunately is not the case. Yeah,
1: the the world is full of people that are not good. And, you know, and and you know, the people worry about themselves and whatever their motives or whatever. And you just have to kind of work within that. But
0: but what I wanted to close with with Ramona's case, Ramona was actually an avid writer of poetry. And so am I. So I really connected with that. So I'm gonna read a section of a poem that Ramona wrote, which her mother shared with CBC News, which I think it's actually a very well written poem. So she said, as I look out to the bright blue sky, this chilly autumn day, there's no way I can thank the creator, no way to repay for the lovely sights to heart's content that he has let me see for joys and laughter that I've lived and the love that he gave me.
1: Oh, that's very nice.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So only a month after Ramona's disappearance, another young indigenous woman went missing by the name of Roxanne Fiara. So Roxanne was born in Manitoba, Canada. So we actually have a lot of listeners in Manitoba. Okay. So shout out to Manitoba. She was born in Manitoba, but I, um, I could, I couldn't find anything on it, but she was taken out of the care of her parents. They were deemed by the ministry to be unfit parents. So she was placed into foster care as a child and she ended up being adopted by her foster mother. And they had a very close relationship and her, the foster mother's name was Mildred Thiara. So that's where she gets that last name from. So she was born in Manitoba, but she was raised in, forgive me if I don't pronounce this right, Quaisenelle, British Columbia. So as an adolescent, Roxanne began to struggle and was hanging around with what Mildred, her mother, later described as, quote, a bad bunch. So at the age of 12, Roxanne was sent to a youth detention center for some sort of petty crime. I tried to look it up, what it was. All I know is it was some sort of petty crime. I'm assuming like shoplifting or maybe something like that, but I couldn't find specifically what it was. Okay. After spending time in the detention center, Roxanne went really downhill after that, which... Who knows what she experienced in there? I'm sure it wasn't great. Roxanne's brother-in-law said it was, quote, the worst thing to happen to her. And that once she was released, she, quote, went wild. Unfortunately, to deal with the trauma of her experience. How old was she? She was 12 when she was put into the juvenile detention center. Okay. So to deal with the trauma from that, Roxanne, unfortunately, she turned to drugs, which eventually led her to participating in sex work to pay for the drugs. Despite her issue with drugs, Roxanne still kept in close contact with her family. So in June of 1994, Roxanne told her mother that she wanted to enter rehab and she wanted to begin to address her addiction issues.
1: Okay. So on June
0: 27th, 1994, so at this point she was 15. So she'd been doing drugs since she was 12. Three years later at 15, she's, she decides I want to go into rehab. I want to, you know, clean up my life. Right. Roxanne, which got at 15.
1: It happens. Yeah, I mean,
0: so she made an appointment at her mother's house. She called a rehabilitation center and she made an appointment to enter rehab. So she left her mom's house to go get her things in Prince George. So she planned to return the following day to begin rehab, but Roxanne never returned. Her family reported her missing. And quickly distributing flyers, calling friends, because you know, they right. weren't sure like, did she just go back on like a bender? Right, right. Or, or... but they, they knew something was wrong because like I said, even even when she was like heavily on drugs, she she was always keeping in touch with her her mom. Okay. So not hearing from her was odd, regardless. Right. A friend, once, you know, they reported her missing to the police and the police started investigating, a friend of Roxanne's told investigator that she had run into Roxanne on June 27th, the last day her right. parents had seen her right. when she'd gone back to go get her things. So she'd run into Roxanne outside of a store and she told her that she was meeting a customer, quote unquote. So from sex work.
1: Sex work. Okay. Yeah.
0: In downtown Prince George that evening. Okay. So the friend watched her walk around the corner of the building and that was the last time anyone has ever reported seeing or speaking with Roxanne.
1: It was 15 at this time, right? 15. 15 and oh, golly. okay.
0: And beautiful girl, I I will post a um even with our uh last episode, I always post the like I I just want to preface Some of these victims, there are no pictures of that I'm able to find. So I still mention them in in the posting, Uh but I post all the pictures that I'm able to find of these girls. So there is pictures of Roxanne and she was a beautiful girl. Wow. Very sad. So less than a month later, on August 17th, 1994, Roxanne's body was found dumped in the brush alongside Highway 16, about four miles outside of Burns Lake.
1: Wow.
0: Her murder is still unsolved. She is on the e-panelist, so it is being investigated by that task force. Okay. Strangely, our next victim was Roxanne's friend.
1: The one, the one that saw her last?
0: No. Wow. Okay. No. Her name is Alicia Germain, but she went by the na- nickname Leah, so I'm going to call her Leah. She was also only 15 years old, and she also was an indigenous woman. Okay. On December 9th, 1994, so that's only four months following the discovery of Roxanne's body, Leah went missing, and within hours of her being reported missing, her body was discovered behind an elementary school on the outskirts of Prince George. Like Roxanne, Leah was also a drug addict, and she also engaged in sex work. Okay. Her murder has also never been solved, and she is also on the e-panel list. Wow, okay. So the, both of those, they were friends. They knew each other. I mean, to me, odds are.
1: Yeah, there's some correlation there for sure.
0: But yeah, both That's are still so unsolved. So there's a trigger warning for our next case. It includes the murder of an infant. oh boy. Um, So it's not a great one. All right. On April 5th, 1995, the bodies of 25-year-old Sheila Fay Kinequan was found alongside the body of her daughter, Christine, inside their apartment in McIntyre Crescent. Both mother and baby had been strangled to death. Prior to the discovery of their bodies, Sheila had broken up with her common-law husband, and who was also Christine's father, whose right. name was John Joseph Seymour. Okay. Shortly following the discovery of the bodies, the police located the body of John under the Alex Fraser Bridge. So it was basically determined that after murdering his wife and child, uh, John okay. had gone to the bridge and completed suicide by jumping to his death okay so there's not a lot of information that's literally all the information i could find on it but it happened like within miles of the highway of tears so it's on the list right you know there's a lot of conspiracy theories that like john was murdered and like he didn't do it but i I was gonna
1: say did they have do they have like um do they have proof that he actually committed the murders or they're just suspecting that he did because he committed suicide
0: Honestly, like, I couldn't find a lot of information on it. I don't right. know. Like, the police have released a statement that he did it. So I would venture to guess that they have some sort of like concrete right. evidence that I, I doubt they just found him dead or like he did it.
1: Right, right, right. But, I, you know, usually like the case is still considered, well, the case is considered closed, I'm assuming, right? It's just part of it happening yes. within the area. Okay. Yeah. Because a lot of times, even if the, the perpetrator is dead or whatever, if there's, you know, physical evidence that, you know, ties them to the murder whatever you can close those cases out even though there's no arrest naturally because the offender's dead but those are still considered closed cases so
0: so i mean that's a horrible case but it happened sure. along the highway of tears so it's on the list
1: it's on the list all right
0: our next case takes place on october 6 1995 when 19 year old lana patricia derrick went missing lana okay. was going to so lana also an indigenous woman Lana was going to college and was enrolled in a forestry program at a college in Houston, British Columbia. I'm assuming it's pronounced Houston. I re- I want to say that I do recognize that sometimes it's pronounced Houston. So okay, our Canadian listeners let me know, is it Houston or Houston? I don't know. She had a break from classes from college. And so she decided to go home to visit her parents who lived in Terrence. So on the night of October 6th, Lana had went to her friend Clarice's house at around 3 a.m. While there, Lana invited Clarice to go to a party with her, but Clarice declined the invite and Lana left her, ho- her house. Okay. When Lana didn't return home, her parents obviously reported her missing to the RCMP the next day. The RCMP received several reports that Lana was seen after leaving Clarissa's house at a gas station off of Highway 16. It was reported by several witnesses that she was seen getting into a vehicle with two males. However, Lana's parents doubt that any of those reports are accurate. So I don't really know why. I, I read an entire interview with the parents, with I think I believe it was CBC News. And I also read uh, an interview with Lana's aunt, whose name is Sally, and they she just says that basically that their side of the family doesn't believe that she was ever at this gas station, but they they don't explain why they believe that.
1: Okay.
0: And obviously, it was, just, police- it was just
1: a report that she was seen there, right? There's no video of her there or anything like that, right? right.
0: It's just witness statements. And right. I mean, even the police say like, we don't even have proof that it was her, right. but you know, when there are there, there were, they do say there were several witnesses that like were unaffiliated with one right, another okay. who, who claimed right. to have seen her, you know? Right. Okay. Yeah. So unfortunately, Lana is still missing to this day. No okay. evidence has ever been found relating to her disappearance. Of at any all.
1: Time, Nothing at all.
0: Nope. Besides these witness statements. Right. Right. Initially, Lana's aunt, Sally Gibson told CBC news that the family was unhappy with the investigation claiming that only 72 hours after Lana's disappearance, the police stopped searching and directed volunteer searchers to stop searching. However, Gibson says that Sergeant Wayne Clary, which we've, we've talked about before, yep. since he took over the EPANA task force because Lana is part of the EPANA task force, she claims that the family has renewed hope in the investigation because of Wayne Clary. So once again, shout out to Wayne. Yep. Like you're doing the damn thing.
1: Yep, he's carrying the torch.
0: And, like, you're working to build trust again in law enforcement. Like, I appreciate course, that. Yeah. yeah. So, like I said, that's the same sergeant that Ramona's mother said good things about. Right. So, each year, the family also organizes a march, just like the other one we talked about. Right. They organize a march in Lana's honor, in which they march to the local police station from where she disappeared. So, once again, if anybody, like, goes to that, tag us in it. I want to promote it. Of the event, Sally said, quote, this is Lana's aunt. She said, here we thought, you know, we'll be lucky if a policeman comes out of the police station where we walk to. When Clary and the policewoman that's on Lana's case both showed up for the walk, we almost fell over. So good for them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean. Like,
0: they showed up to the walk. They, like, you know, good.
1: The a majority of us care and want to do as much as we can, you know, like, and, you know, sometimes we can't do enough and there's nothing that we can do and it gets frustrating, but, you know, and I'm not going to say that there aren't officers that don't care because there are certainly, I've worked with some that are, you know, shouldn't be working, but you know, that's in every profession, I think so. But for the most part, you know, a lot of places they are just overworked or understaffed and, you know, well, it's I like, think,
0: I think we're going to start to see a pattern when it comes to Sergeant Clary
1: because
0: yeah. people love, I'm talking the families. Yeah. They love him. Right. They all have good things to say about him. Like since he's taken over, we know he like right, you know, wants to help us. Right. He makes an effort to go to these walks, you know. Right. Which like good for him. I'm glad.
1: Yeah. yeah I mean it's that all there's part somebody
0: of, who fucking cares.
1: Yeah, you never know what you may get some information from there. Like you never know, like talking to people and something may come up that wasn't discussed before with a family or something. And you just never know it like tips can, you know, like information comes from everywhere. You just, you can't just be, you know, very tunnel visioned and, you know, you can't be very singular in, in your approach to, you know, you have to be very open minded to all the possibilities. And if you have the tenacity to follow up with all of, you know, with all of those things, that's what closes cases. Like, you know, it's historically, it's just, it's the, the legwork that solves the cases, you know? So.
0: Yeah, and even at the end of the day, yeah, it, you may get like new leads, which would be great. But also like, you're just building trust in Yeah. That I mean, you're, you're showing doing- the
1: family, you're showing the family that it's not a file sitting on their desk, you know, like, like I
0: if- give a shit.
1: Right. Right. Because we do, it's just a lot of times we can't, you know, we've done everything we can. And, you know, after a while, like I know me personally, like a couple of my cases is like, I've told the family everything I can tell them. And then when they reach out to me, it's like, nothing's changed and you feel bad telling them. And, you know, sometimes I have some family, like they call me like weekly and it's like, Nothing's changed. I promise you. If I anything happens, I'll call you. But and you, you know, after a while, it's just like you get frustrated because you don't have anything to do, and like to tell them, and you know, you feel bad after a while. So it's you know, it's it's tough. So if you can show up to these marches and stuff, and naturally, it still shows the family you care, and and that
0: you're, know, you know, that you're still like on top of it.
1: Of course, that it's still in your mind, and you're still actively, you know, wanting to solve the case. So you know, good for him. I'm, you know, I'm. It's good to hear that type of, you know, that type of stuff. So, cheers. Right.
0: What are you drinking? Smetics. Oh, Schmidix. I'm drinking the old white claw. Yeah. God bless. White claw, no law. <laughs> but I'm drinking it with the law. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, our next, well, first of all, let me preface this by saying that all of these cases are important and they all like deserve to be solved. But this one is like one of my favorites because <laughs> she is such a goddamn badass. Okay. So, our next victim was a fucking hero. Her name was Hazel White. Okay. So, on March 11th, 1996, Hazel's best friend, whose name was Bonnie Mooney, she had been attacked by her husband, this piece of shit. His name is Roland Kruska. Okay. So, after they'd had an argument, Roland chased down Bonnie with his vehicle, basically trying to run her over and kill her.
1: Jesus. Okay.
0: So, Bonnie goes to the RCMP, she escapes. She goes to the RCMP to file charges against Roland. She explains what happens, that he's been an abuser for years, um, that she's scared for her life and her daughter's life. She has a 13-year-old daughter. Unfortunately, the officer who took the statement was a piece of shit. Didn't take it seriously. His name, I want to call him out, Constable Craig Anderchuk. Fuck you. <laughs> okay. He told Bonnie that it wasn't a criminal matter, it was a civil matter, and that she needed to hire a divorce attorney, and he refused to investigate it.
1: Okay. Wrong.
0: Yeah, fuck him. So, like a badass, Bonnie's best friend, Hazel, she decides, well, if the police aren't going to do anything, I'm going to stay with you and your daughter for moral support, like, you know, because you're afraid of this guy showing up at your house, because she'd already like started divorce proceedings and, you know, left him.
1: Of course, right.
0: So on April 29th, 1996, this is only basically a month, a little over a month after this whole car incident. Okay. So shortly before midnight, Bonnie is in her bed with her daughter. Hazel is sleeping on the couch. Okay. The women were both awakened when they heard someone crashing through the home's glass patio door. It was Roland, the husband, with a sawed-off shotgun in his hand. Hazel (laughs) directed Bonnie and her daughter to escape through a bathroom window And she grabbed a piece of driftwood and began beating Roland with it. Good for her. In order to give her friend enough time to escape. Unfortunately, Roland turned the shotgun on Hazel and fired into her back and she died.
1: Oh, okay.
0: He then attempted to shoot Bonnie's 13-year-old daughter, but luckily only wounded her.
1: Jesus, okay.
0: Um, she, She didn't die as a result of her wounds, but they were able to escape. So due to Hazel's bravery, both Bonnie and her daughter escaped with their lives.
1: Damn. Okay.
0: So following their escape, Roland attempted to set Bonnie's house on fire, and then he killed himself using the shotgun. So at the time of this attack, Roland was on probation. He had been released from jail after only serving 21 days for severely beating Bonnie with a cane. So he was never charged for trying to run her over with the car because that asshole cop didn't do anything fucking about it.
1: Civil matter. Yeah. civil matter. It's a
0: civil matter. <laughs> it's a, yeah. He tried to run me over with his car, but civil matter. Civil matter. I'll, I'll let the divorce, the divorce attorneys handle it. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, he had beat Bonnie with a cane so badly that he had served 20, only 21 days. So he also had previous convictions for manslaughter in 1979 and a sexual assault in 1985. <laughs> okay. So this guy, like, was on a path where, like, it was yeah. very clear he had an issue and no one wanted to do anything.
1: Yeah, it was just going to escalate into him taking somebody's life, which he did.
0: I don't know. This case, like, gets me because, like, I'm a victim of domestic violence. And I just think that this is so common that people don't take it seriously. And this is why women don't report it. This is why women. What's the point? Like, I report it and that you're what? You're going to give him 21 days. Well, guess what he's going to do when he gets out?
1: Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's unfortunate. It happens, you know, and it happens everywhere. It happens, I guess. Yes, we can clearly see in Canada. It happens here. Happens, you know, sometimes there's just officers that aren't worth their their waiting. yeah, fuck them. So yeah, agreed.
0: In good news for her bravery, Hazel Catherine White was awarded the Star of Courage on October 31st, 1997.
1: Yeah, it only cost her her life trying to protect her friend.
0: I know it makes me so mad.
1: That one officer, not that necessarily that one incident would have prevented this from happening, but definitely a a gut wrenching thing. When you hear something like that, that more wasn't done or that he had this type of history or this past. And some, some men just have it in their heads that they can, they can do whatever they want or that, you know, people are possessions or that, you know, you can't be with, if I can't be with you, nobody will that mentality. It's terrific. And it happens all the time. And,
0: yeah i i mean I, fantastic I lady
1: be, hazel gave, you know gave up her life to protect her friend and
0: i don't want to say uh, that i like like that story because it's horrible oh no, no like but i i think definitely applaud like,
1: the bravery of that yeah. lady and you know you definitely want to you know you, you i just love the idea that.
0: of like you know i have some like really good girlfriends and i just love the idea that she was like you go and oh, i'm gonna beat this motherfucker with a piece of well, driftwood
1: i have to say when you told when you said that whether she grabbed a piece of driftwood i was hoping i was like Oh, she beat him to a pulp or something. Hopefully, I
0: I fucking wish that's how it ended.
1: Yeah, but you know, I could honestly say that I wish it didn't happen. I'd be gladly give up my career and what I do. I would definitely found something else to do (laughs) if you know we could make all this shit go away. But
0: on August eighteenth, nineteen ninety seven, Wendy Ann Twist Rate left home to meet with a group of friends to say her name again. Wendy Ann Twist Rate. Uh
1: Oh, rate. Okay. I thought you said rape. Was it's, like,
0: well, it's R-A-T-T-E. So I think it's pronounced rate.
1: Right. Okay. That's fine. I just, I, I heard rape like with a P. That would like, be an
0: odd last name.
1: Would be. And if that know. was
0: my last name, I would definitely change it. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so she left home to meet with a group of friends to work on an anti-racism.
1: <laughs>
0: to work on an anti-racism video okay. in downtown Prince George. And she never returned home. So, her husband, Dennis Raitt, reported her missing, and her vehicle was discovered in what is now Value Village. But Wendy was nowhere to be found.
1: That's like a store or something, right?
0: Yeah, it's like a shopping center, I think. Right. Okay. Okay. So, at the time, it wasn't Value Village, but that's like what it is known as now. Okay. Gotcha. It wasn't long before the case went cold. However, Wendy's daughter, Anna, She was seventeen at the time of her mother's disappearance, and she, once she became an adult, bec- was hounding the RCMP to continue investigating. So for 10 years, Anna was told that the police didn't have the resources to continue the investigation.
1: Yeah, some departments don't have it. when they're very small departments, they don't you know they don't have the manpower, they don't have the money, the resources, the
0: Well, know. let me just tell you, Anna, she's a badass. Okay. She's a down bitch. All right. She went to the higher ups in Prince George and was like, you better find the resources. Investigate my mom's disappearance. Fuck you. So in 2008, that's 11 years after Wendy first disappeared. Anna's persistence finally paid off. The police, who had always suspected Anna's father of killing her mother, set up an elaborate undercover operation in order to get Dennis to confess.
1: 11 years later.
0: So this operation is wow. known as the Mr. Big Sting. Have you ever heard of this? No. Okay. So I, this was so interesting when I was researching. I was like, what? <laughs> so it's a, it's a Canadian sting operation. It's, it's very, actually another case we're going to cover uses it as well. Okay. So it's this sting operation that the Canadians invented. Okay. So a Mr. Big Sting. It's a Canadian technique where undercover police officers will pretend to be a part of a fake criminal. Sorry, I'm like
1: doing you need to blow your nose.
0: I need to blow my nose because I was crying over Hazel. Sorry, Hazel got me off a clamp.
1: I understand.
0: Okay, so a Mr. Big Sting is a Canadian technique. Okay. So undercover police officers will pretend to be a part of a fake criminal organization. So, like being part of the mob or like whatever. Right. right. And they'll seduce their suspect into joining it. So, this is like months and months of a sting operation. Right. Okay. They work on building a relationship with the suspect in order to gain their trust. Of course. So, they want to prove that their operation is real. Right. So they will get the suspects involved in committing fake crimes and they'll even pay them to do them. So, you know, to gain their confidence and prove that, like, this is a real criminal operation, quote unquote.
1: Wow. So I like that of,
0: Well, is it? No,
1: it's no. No. Well, I don't know. I don't know. It's Canada. I don't know.
0: Well, they don't do this in the United States. So uh, it's a, it's legal in Canada, I guess. All right, awesome. well, I know God it is. Cause here we are.
1: God bless them. If it catches criminals, I'm all for it.
0: So this is some of the like illegal activities that they'll pay the suspects to do, like to prove that they're like a real criminal organization. They'll do like credit card scams. They'll sell guns, delivering illegal goods, like but it's all set up by the government. So it's fake. But like, obviously, the person thinks it's real. Right, right, right. And they'll literally pay them for doing these things for like an extended period of time. So once they've fully gained the suspect's trust, they persuade him or her to divulge whatever information about their past crimes that they want them to talk about, right? They probably
1: like as an like what crimes have you committed to like join our Right, group? right, right. So
0: they'll be like, yeah, well, oh, you I killed go,
1: somebody. Yeah, you're if in. Yeah, if you want yeah, to
0: go higher in the organization, like tell us, you know, this is this, right, and that. right.
1: That's brilliant, brilliant.
0: So these sting operations require a lot of funding and can cost anywhere from a 100000 to up to, there's cases that have cost $2 million.
1: Good investigations are not cheap. They are not. $2 million.
0: The U.S. government would never put that much into one case. Mm, You'd be amazed. Well, unless it's like you're investigating like a mafia organization or like some big ass thing. Which happens. But for a missing persons case, I highly doubt it.
1: No, you're right. You're right. No, we're not spending two million dollars probably on that, but
0: so I don't know I don't know how much they spent on Wendy's case, this particular case, but okay. they, they did this Mr. Big Sting operation to like get the dad. So Good. during during Dennis's Mr. Big Sting operation. The police took Dennis on a trip to Winnipeg in order to shake down a business associate, quote unquote, right? So they they tell him we have to go. Sh- you know, they, he thinks he's part of the mob, right? So they're all like, right. we have to go shake down this this guy who hasn't. A-
1: How <laughs> old is this guy at this time? Like, do we know?
0: I think he's in his fifties.
1: Okay, all right.
0: While there, Dennis confessed to murdering his wife on August eighteenth, nineteen ninety-seven, the day that he reported her missing. He said that he killed her because she was sexually abusing their daughter, Anna, which Anna is the one who's been pushing for her mothers to find her mom. Right. And so he claims that that Wendy was abusing Anna sexually. And so he he had no choice but to murder her. And he disposed of her body in a swamp east of Prince George. And then he moved her vehicle to the spot it was found in to make it look like she just abandoned the family and run away. Okay. So Dennis was immediately arrested once he confessed and eventually found guilty at trial. He received life in prison with the possibility of parole after 15 years. Okay. Which that's bullshit to me, but you know, it happens. I'm glad he was convicted, but 15 years for murdering your wife seems. Well, okay.
1: But yeah, right. But, but he's only eligible for parole after 15. Doesn't mean he's going to get it.
0: Right. But I mean, still Uh the possibility is like,
1: uh, yeah, I know. I know. But.
0: Of his conviction, Anna told the Prince George citizen, quote, being his child, I didn't want to believe it. When your parents tell you something, you believe everything they say. But his own story started to fall apart and the pieces started to come together for me. I can't say I completely believed it until they arrested him, but the pieces really started to fit together at that point. Wow. In that same article, Anna explained that her father had always acted suspiciously following her mother's disappearance. She also claims that he frequently would kill neighbor's animals and brag about it without showing any signs of remorse.
1: Oh, he definitely had a screw loose or something.
0: Yeah, like he's like clearly a sociopath.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: He said that he would literally like steal the neighbor's animals and kill them and then like brag to her. She has a brother. He would then like brag to them about like, oh, ha ha. Can you believe I killed Mrs. Smith's like dog? Ha ha.
1: How's that? Like, well, yeah. well, he's a sociopath, that's why I don't know. He's, can't make this shit up.
0: He also stole money from family members to feed a severe gambling addiction and had also been cashing his wife's employment insurance checks in the months after she went missing. <laughs> yeah, he's a piece of shit. Yep. Also, three years following his wife's murder, he had been arrested and convicted for drug dealing. It's hmm. nice guy. Really, you know, just stand up, stand up guy. Yeah. So model citizen. Of her father's (laughs) statement that her mother was a sexual abuser, because remember, he said, oh, I killed her because she was abusing Anna.
1: That's already just like this discredited because she's the one seeking justice for her mom. Sorry. right?
0: Well, and let's just I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It absolutely does. Of course. Right. Right. But there is it's just in general, very rare for women to commit those sort of crimes.
1: Right. And I'm not like I'm not a victim of that. So I don't like I don't know. But I would venture to say that if I was a child being abused by a parent and that parent disappeared or something, I would probably never want them found. Oh, she's missing. Oh, well.
0: So about that, Anna said, quote, anyone who thinks or needs to know she was not that kind of person. Every single value I have comes from her. She was a strong moral person. She taught her children strong morals. We called her a crusader. She was an advocate for human rights, for multiculturalism, sexual rights. She was a fighter, end quote. So Anna basically says, oh, that's bullshit, you know, because he got arrested and was claiming that. And then I guess later he said, oh, no, I made that up. Like he even admitted. Oh, so he did. Okay. Yeah. Like he even admitted like, no, that's not true.
1: So he had like a moment of clarity or.
0: I don't know what led him to to like come clean about that. I would like to say had a moment of clarity. But honestly, I think he's a sociopath. So I doubt that motivated it. But.
1: Yeah, I mean, who knows? You know, those people's brains are not normal. So
0: yeah, it's like hard to make sense of it.
1: 100%.
0: Strangely, Anna's brother, Gabriel, does not believe that his father killed their mom. He said that he doesn't believe that his dad did it, but he accepts the jury's verdict. But despite their deferring viewpoints on the issue, both Anna and her brother, Gabriel, remain very close. And Anna said about it, she said, quote, all we have left is each other.
1: Yeah. have to agree to disagree i guess and did they ever go look for the mother or find any remains or anything or no No. so
0: they're not even sure if like he was telling the truth about like where he dumped her or whatever but honestly it had been like so many years that i I know but it'd be hard anyway yeah i know because it was in a swamp that he dumped her that he said he dumped her right so our next victim is 36 year old linda geraldine lefranc So she was in her apartment sleeping when a 17-year-old neighbor, Christopher Maurice Alexander, broke in and attempted to rape Linda. Linda fought back and was stabbed 83 times with a knife that Christopher had taken from the kitchen.
1: Jesus, H.
0: Yeah, 83 times. He left Linda there to die. And unfortunately, Linda's seven-year-old daughter was the one to discover her body the next morning.
1: So she did. Okay, she did die.
0: Yeah. I mean, 83 times. It's hard to no, say. No, no,
1: I know. I know. I know. Yeah, Yes, I know. But I'm just, you never, I was hoping she'd live. Like,
0: I know. Like the last case, Christopher was caught. That's like,
1: a fucking anger. 83?
0: 83 times. And this was her neighbor. Like she, like, knew yeah, it's him. not
1: even like a loved one or uh, like a lover or something. Like usually those crimes of passion, they're like that. But no, I mean, yeah, eight? like
0: they, they had no relationship beyond like a neighborly wow. one. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. So, like the last case, Christopher was also caught when police used a Mr. Big undercover.
1: Hey, I like that Mr. Big idea.
0: Yeah, maybe you should bring it up in your, uh, you know, I your will. department. Be like, let's oh, do some Mr. Big shit. I'm
1: gonna throw that out there.
0: And then when they're like, what's that? Be like, look it up, bitch.
1: No, no. I'll be like, I'll tell it. <laughs> when I hear it. I'll tell it.
0: You're like, I'll tell you what I know. But also, like, do some research.
1: That's it. Google it, mother.
0: <laughs> use, the, use that googly shit. Okay. Googly.
1: Yeah.
0: So in 2002, he was convicted of second degree murder and was given life in prison. However, prepare to get mad. Go ahead. In
1: 2014,
0: despite objections from Linda's family, Christopher was granted day parole. What? Yeah, he could just leave during the day and then he had to come back to prison at night.
1: All right. Listen to our Canadian listeners. You guys are super nice. But, you know, come on. Day parole. That don't happen down here.
0: Well, don't get me wrong. I am for day parole. If it's like a non-violent crime and like, you know, you got arrested for like shoplifting. Okay. If you want day parole, gotcha. like cool.
1: I but agree.
0: when you violently murder? murdered somebody and stabbed them 83 fucking times and knew, murder, as, and knew and knew, hold on, and knew as their neighbor. No, you, now,
1: hold, on. No, you murder, hold on. rape, arm robbery. <laughs> no. Well, and- anything else we can have a discussion on, but like those are the top three. Like, that's the, the, the trifecta of crime. Like,
0: Well, and on top of that, the part that really sticks out to me is as their neighbor, you knew she had a seven year old daughter and you left her mother stabbed to death 83 times in that apartment, knowing that that daughter either a probably heard it and is terrified and horrible, or even if she didn't hear it and, and blessedly slept through it, you knew that who was going to find her? Her daughter, her seven-year-old daughter. You're a piece of shit. Okay, so they let him out on day parole, right?
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Even not a fan, they, Canada. Not even, a fan.
0: Even though her her family... Love you, Canada,
1: went... but not a fan of that.
0: We Yeah, we love you, Canada, but not a fan of that.
1: Not a fan we, of that.
0: They went... Her family went to every parole hearing and fought against it, and they still gave it to him.
1: Wow. Tell me he re-offended. He did something while oh, he yeah, was out yeah, he on... did.
0: He did. <laughs>
1: you can't make this shit up. Can't. Just automatically happens.
0: So he gets state parole. Two mm-hmm. years later, he was arrested again on two counts of sexual assault. He got a girlfriend. He raped his girlfriend while she was sleeping. So was sent back to prison. day so that-
1: parole was revoked?
0: No. So, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> at that point. Yeah. So he has since been seeking parole again. He's still in prison, but can still, like, fight for parole.
1: Got he- it one time. Why not try again? Why not?
0: But so far, he's been denied.
1: All right, well, maybe maybe the 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 Canadian justice system is thinking better of it.
0: Well, yeah. at least that specific parole board
1: for him, right? Yeah, like for you him. little
0: idiots. I mean, I've never been on a parole board, and I can't say that I know your jobs. And I'm sure it's a difficult job, and I'll give that to you. Absolutely, but I agree with you, you. You let a dude who literally tried to rape a, a woman and stabbed her eighty three times.
1: times. Yep, yep.
0: And you were like, "Yeah, you can go out for the day. Yep, everything will be fine." Okay, we're getting towards the end here. On October 30th, 1999, a four-year-old indigenous girl. All
1: right.
0: So this is a trigger warning for child abuse. It's really bad. I'm already triggered. I'm already also triggered. And I know the story, so. Uh, And you're going to get real fucking mad about it. Okay. This case is out of all the 90s cases. There's a lot of cases to be fucking mad about.
1: This is like the worst one.
0: This one is like, I want to fight everybody involved in this case. Okay. Amanda Jean Simpson was brought to Prince George Regional Hospital by her mother, Terry Walton, and her stepfather, Ronald Pulson. Amanda had suffered massive head and abdominal injuries and was already in a coma when she was brought to the hospital. Amanda had a fractured skull, bleeding in and outside of her brain, a broken collarbone, retinal hemorrhaging, and severe hypothermia. Unfortunately, her injuries were so extensive that doctors were unable to save her. And Amanda passed away three days later.
1: Three days. Yeah. She fucking lived with that pain for three.
0: Four years old. She's She was my daughter's age. She's
1: got my daughter's name.
0: Yeah. If I could. Oh, don't, don't. If, if I That's could. Pre-meditation. get premeditation. I don't even care. <laughs> if I could get my hands on this fucking guy. Oh, I would. Nothing okay, okay. makes me more. Continue.
1: Injury. All right. Good. Continue.
0: The night that Amanda suffered her injuries, she had been in the care of her stepfather while her mother was at work. Ronald claimed Amanda had fallen down the stairs. And then later she had slipped while he was giving her a bath in the tub. And that is how she got all those injuries. Bullshit. 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 So you're just wait till you're going to get more mad.
1: Great. Can't wait.
0: Upon Amanda's admittance to the hospital, Ronald was charged with child abuse, obviously, but following her death, those charges were stayed and no charges have ever been laid since then.
1: Whoa, 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 whoa. What? Yeah. Okay, hold on. When she was alive, you had enough to charge him, but then she dies and you don't?
0: That's, don't ask me to explain it.
1: This is a joke, right?
0: No, 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 no. And Wait, it gets worse. Are you ready?
1: What is he, the mayor's brother or something?
0: No, not that I know of. So they, no one's brought charges. She dies. No one brings charges. This case is closed.
1: Go ahead. Go ahead. I got so many questions, but go ahead.
0: A few days before Amanda's death. Mm -hmm. So your anger is just going to build and build. A few days before Amanda's death, her younger sister, Amy. So there was four children all together. They were all girls. Her younger sister, Amy, she was three Mm -hmm. and Amanda was four. So Amy told a trusted adult, they've never released who this adult was, Mm -hmm. but she told the trusted adult that she and her three siblings were being severely abused. She reportedly told them, quote, this is in the report, please save me. The adult immediately contacted Child Welfare in Prince George and reported the abuse like they should have, so good for them. That was the second time in three weeks that child abuse had been reported in connection with their home. And it was the 22nd report of abuse the family had received altogether. Despite years of complaints, multiple complaints by neighbors, teachers, you name it, the trusted adult that reported this a child protection worker told them that they would not be investigating the complaint and that Amy needed to be taught the difference between quote truth and fiction. Speechless. Aren't you like infuriated? Speechless. <laughs> yeah, ridiculous. I want, I also want to punch that fucking social worker in the face. But anyway,
1: do we know her name?
0: No, it's not released publicly. Of course not. Of course not. I don't know. I don't even know if it's a she. It could be a, I have no idea, mm. but
1: there sure, I know. Really a
0: horrible like person. Yep who should not be a social worker. So following Amanda's death, the remaining three children were finally taken away and put into ministry custody. Terry Walton, who's the mother, she attempted to sue to regain custody, but obviously was unsuccessful. Finally, in 2007, a coroner's inquest was held to determine what had actually happened to Amanda. And at the inquest, three separate medical experts testified that Amanda's injuries did not match up with what Ronald claimed happened. Correct. Yeah. That she had slipped in the tub and fallen downstairs
1: one forced trauma. I'm sure to the head.
0: One doctor stated, quote, this wasn't an accident. She was beaten to death. Mm -hmm. He stated that she had been quote, battered, shaken, struck, punched, kicked, stomped, and perhaps thrown. As a result, her death was finally classified as a homicide. Okay. However, oh. despite that, still no charges have ever been laid during uh, about her death.
1: And do do they say why? Just out of curiosity, nope. why no charges were ever?
0: So of Amanda, because now her sister Amy. Is what, what what law
1: enforcement agency are we talking? The Royal Canadian Prince
0: George, yeah, oh, RCMP and Prince George. Okay of Amanda, because now her sister Amy is an an adult. She told CBC News, quote, I know she would have grown tall. Sorry. I know she would have grown tall and beautiful like my other sisters. I think about her a lot and I miss her very much. She also said, quote, it hurts me to know my sister never got to live her life and even more that no one cares to figure out why. Isn't that crazy?
1: I don't get it. I I don't understand. I don't.
0: I don't know. That one gets that type me. of
1: that type of shit happens. Unfortunately, I hear a lot of those stories and it's like,
0: I need to use a jacket to like, for, for those of you that don't know, I'm recording in my walk-in closet because it's soundproof. So I'm just using t-shirts to wipe my tears.
1: I just don't understand how the, no charges. If, if you initially you charge him when he first, when they first brought to the hospital and alive,
0: well, the, uh, let me put it this way. The article that I read, which is the one that they interviewed her sister, Amy, which is with CBC News. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. They specifically say at the end that they contacted the RC, uh, the RCMP for comment and they never received anything about of it. Of course not. No response.
1: No. That's horrific, man. That's To me, that's as bad as the crime itself.
0: Yeah, this guy and, and her, the piece of shit mom.
1: She's still with him or was? Oh, I
0: don't, well, she was. I don't know if she still is. But either way, that they're both pieces of shit. Either I'll one of them this. have ever been charged. None.
1: I'm going to throw this out here. For those few listeners that we do have in Canadian, in, Ca- in Canada, in Canada.
0: Oh, Canada. If
1: you have, if you work in a position or you know people that are in position to look into this, please encourage that. This is. Uh,
0: that's such a miscarriage of justice. It's like, yeah, sp- that's, literally, it makes me sick to my stomach.
1: I, uh, I, I have nothing to say I...
0: like I could literally maybe we'll do it one day I could literally do like a separate podcast all about that case and then we should and like investigating it and fucking like calling people and like then we should I don't know there's something about that case that really like sticks with me and like makes me crazy I'm down so we only have one case left okay So our last case of the 1990s is the murder of 18-year-old Monica McKay. Monica was last seen by friends just before midnight on New Year's Eve in 1999. When she still hadn't returned home two days later, her family reported her missing to the RCMP. Eight days later, on January 8th, 2000, a passerby found Monica's body beside a dumpster. (sighs) which I hate when people leave bodies. Don't get me wrong. Like I understand that they're just trying to like hide their crime and like whatever, no matter where they dump the body, it's still horrific, but something about dumping a body in a dumpster really gets to me. It's like, you just really think they're fucking garbage. Like yeah. I, it like infuriates me.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: So her murder has never been solved. And despite its similarities to a lot of other cases that we've covered, her case has not been added to the e panelist. The RCMP reported that they don't believe Monica's case is connected to the highway of tears, but have given very little information as to why that they believe that to be true. Cause obviously it's like unsolved. So I don't know if they have like a suspect that they think, I don't know what the deal is.
1: Right. Yeah. Maybe they're working something that's unrelated or.
0: Yeah. But they, they haven't added her to the e-panelist. Okay. And a lot of these cases aren't on the e-panelists, like even though, you know, so, I mean.
1: Well, I have to say for like a task force, whatever there's when they're going to investigate multiple cases they they set up like a criteria type of, or like a.
0: They do have a criteria.
1: Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, if you have, let's say the criteria requires 10 similarities and they have eight, then they're not, you know, because again, they're already looking at a lot of cases, you know, the, the volume of, of cases may be overwhelming. So, you know, they have to kind of weed them out and, you know, uh, can cases be added of course, but, you know, so that's probably, I would say at least. Give them the benefit of doubt on that. Like you know, I know that that does happen. So you know, I'm going to venture a guess that that's probably why she has this one hasn't been you know added to it.
0: So of the case, Constable Mike Herchuk said, "Quote: When you get the volume of kids we have missing, especially those that are turning up dead or sexually abused or kidnapped and tortured, you can't help but want to connect the dots." On a lighter note. Oh please. We will end. (laughs) <laughs> God. Whew, i'm a little bit yeah we'll end with two questions
1: okay good hopefully they're good questions like happy questions
0: okay well this one i thought was really fucking funny especially like okay. how they typed it out okay good so this is from sarah so just in- unless you guys tell me that i can like use your last names i just don't just so you know because you know i don't want to assume so but it's sarah is the first name so she the way she typed out this question she i'm gonna read it the way she typed it because it's in all it's in all caps and it ends with like multiple question exclamation points so
1: she's yelling at us
0: why the hell have you (laughs) been tased so many times
1: Okay, well. Oh, so
0: if you all well, the preface. If you haven't listened to the our coverage of Kenyatta Baron and R- Ronivia O'Neill murder, go back and listen to it because he talks about being tased. So that's where that question comes from.
1: All right. So naturally, when um, as a law enforcement officer, when you go to certification to get your taser, they tase you because they want you to a experience what the the, the pain, and it's the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. I will take pepper spray. CS gas any day, although people think I'm crazy, but you have to experience what you're going to be doing to somebody else. It's also to give you the knowledge that if God forbid a subject or somebody gets a taser and turns it on you, the reason why deadly force would be necessary because it totally incapacitates you. And during that, the time that the trigger is pulled and if you pull the trigger, it's a five second run or, or you know we call it a run, but a five second cycle, unless you physically turn it off you are 100% totally incapacitated. So a couple of times I've been tased in training. And then the other times that I've been, I think it's only been a couple more times, but it's called getting bit. And when you're like kind of wrestling with a subject or trying to take them into custody, another officer goes to deploy the taser. There's, I'm not going to get into like procedures and stuff, but there's an announcement that's made so that we can move out of the way when the taser is being deployed. Well, unfortunately I didn't always move out of the way Right in time. So I was within the triangle of the electricity. So basically you're telling
0: me that your fellow officers accidentally tased you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because I was still either had my hands on the subject or I didn't move out quick enough and it's called getting bit. I only got it for like, you know, a second or two, which still fucking hurts, but. You know and and I and I would gladly take it because you know we were able to get the, the subject in custody and stuff, but it's not something that I like, it's not something that I ever want to do. Like I said, the taser has been the most painful thing that I've experienced as far as a training scenario <laughs> in my career. But that's just yeah, kind it of it
0: wasn't like you were just like, yo, tase me exactly. But... Sarah, thank you for the yeah, thanks. thanks i didn't enjoy the
1: tasing sarah just but you know it happens it's like you know just a necessary evil part of the job type of i thing. just thought
0: it was so funny the way she worded it she's like she literally wrote in the email she's like i only have one question and it was like dot dot why in the hell have you been tased so many times <laughs> okay so the, ne- the next question i thought was like fun so it's from tony with an eye okay so hey tony with an eye hi so this is what she asked she asked What is one surprising fact about each of you? So what I wanted to do is I want to say what I think is a surprising fact that people wouldn't guess about you. And I want you to say one about me.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So do you want me to go first?
1: Yeah, you go first.
0: Okay. just so everybody knows I'm the one who goes through all these questions. So I kind of feel bad in the sense that, like, I get time to think about it and he doesn't (laughs) like I kind of just spring it on you. So I've had time to think about this question. All right. So my answer is one surprising fact about you that I think people would find surprising is that he is a huge fan of like opera and musical theater.
1: That's what I was thinking.
0: Like he loves it. He like, we can have like hour long talks about musical theater and like opera. We like, so I studied musical theater and opera, like when I was younger and I, I got my undergrad in that. And like, so he used to be at like every show I would do and like all that stuff but he also like genuinely just enjoys going we've been to like broadway together to see like shows like he gets as excited about it as i do and i'm like a musical theater major like he loves it
1: yeah well you kind of you kind of stole what i was going to say and i would say it, in the few moments that i've had to think about it is that people would know would not know what a beautiful voice you have and how well you sing and it's from when you were very little when you were at the Performance Project and, and doing those. Like yeah, when you shout did, out
0: to the Performance Project.
1: The first time you when you sang Think of Me for that little production.
0: Yeah.
1: And that was like one of the first times that I really like heard you perform. The fact that you were able, to, for those of you that, that from the fan of the Opera, that first song, Think of Me. Uh, my daughter did it when she was, I forget how old you were at that time. I was like 13, maybe. 13. And she sang it just as good as people do it in, in Broadway. And she hit those that area at the at the very end and the high notes and the oh, oh I can't even do it but <laughs> um so that's you know just the, the fact that your voice is so incredible like you know that that, that would be one fact i guess that people don't know of you yet truly really phenomenal i mean i was i'm your biggest fan so it is true is.
0: but also it's interesting cuz not only is he my biggest fan like he doesn't just enjoy it because of me like he no, no, genuinely I, like enjoys it. Like, yeah,
1: just the fact that you have the ability to hit those those notes, those high notes and and so effortlessly and, you know, because I sing and I think in my head, I sound great, but I know I sound horrific. <laughs> but you I mean, you're, you're definitely a very good singer, you know, like,
0: why? Thank so,
1: you. I mean, I am your biggest fan. But,
0: but well, there you go.
1: I hope that answers the question. I mean,
0: yeah, thank you, Tony. That was a good one. We really, yeah. I liked that one a lot for sure till next week bye
1: bye